4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's well, well, where we'll begin. If you remember, several weeks ago I did a lesson on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 through chapter 3, and we're going to finish up the book today. And uh, just a quick review on chapters 1 through 3, kind of hitting the high points of each chapter, that uh, in chapter 1, Paul begins the letter talking about the Thessalonians, their conversion to God, they turn from idols to God. He talks about their their faith, their labor of love, and also their example, the example that they became to all who are in Macedonia and Achaia. In chapter 2, really what we see is the content of Paul's message, which was the gospel, and also his character while he delivered that message, that he wasn't using flattering words, he wasn't deceitful, and how he handled himself amongst brethren. He spoke of that. He described that he acted and comforted as a father uh, towards them. And we can kind of see from from many other uh, books that Paul, epistles that Paul had written, uh, that same uh, character and the same uh, description of his message and how he delivered that message. And also in chapter 3, we see that Paul and those with him, they had concern for their faith and and probably reasonable concern because of the persecutions that they had been dealing with. We can look back in Acts chapter 17 and kind of give us an idea of what the Thessalonians could have been facing and uh, kind, of, kind of can bring that life to, to us. But there was concern for their faith. They, Timothy was sent to them, and then there was relief after Timothy's message that they were continuing, they were enduring. Their, their faith was enduring, even in the midst of all of this trouble. And in chapter 3 and in verse 12, it says, and the, Lord may make, and the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. And there's this phrase that comes up several times in the book that he, he, talk, he says, increase and abound or abound more and more. And in Chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought, how you ought to walk and to please God. And we'll look at a few reasons or the few things in which Paul wants them to abound more and more, more in in this chapter. And one, one of those reasons that I would kind of just put into one big lump is that they were to abound in holiness, and purity. And uh, he says that you abound in more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. And that is kind of a uh, general description of the things in which they are to grow in and that they, have, they, they knew. They were given ways in which they, and they were told ways in that they know how to please God. And it's, it's interesting when you look through the scriptures that Paul and other writers, they give these they, they make these phrases that make it so clear that the people at that time were not in the dark in any shape, form, or fashion of how they were to serve God, how they worship God, how they were conduct themselves amongst brethren and others in the world. And kind of like what we've seen earlier in, in, at the 9 o'clock class with Jehoshaphat and the dealings that he had with Ahab, that he wasn't in the dark about how he was to handle uh, that situation and good intentions or um, well, maybe I could do so much good for Israel. It does not, it does not undo 
uh, what has been given and, and how they were to approach uh, that ungodliness. But it implies that, you know, we see that implies that Paul gave the Thessalonians this knowledge and that they can and they know how to be pleasing to God. And it implies that we today can also know how to be pleasing to God if we have uh, God's word. Now, in verses 2, it says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And he gives these commandments, but he pays specific attention to this realm of sexually, sexual immorality. And um, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 18 through 20, Paul again writing, he says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so Paul clearly says, flee sexual immorality. But then he says, you sin against your own body. And in verse 19, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it kind of brings some imagery here, the temple imagery. And um, what's interesting is in the New Testament, the Christian is described as all three, I say components, I don't know if that's the right term, but all three components of the Old Testament system of sacrifice. We just see uh, Christians as being described as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it made me think of well, what, what is in the temple, the, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence would reside. And, and you know, we see again this, this, this uh, instance in which Paul has said that this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we, and we see multiple passages talk about the indwelling of the Spirit and so on and so forth. But this is uh, just a brief a brief uh, verse in the Second Chronicles when uh, the temple was being built, and it's specific, specifically the holy place and the dimensions of that, most holy place and the dimensions of that. Also, Romans chapter 12, and verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, again, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And what is that living sacrifice? It is holy. It is acceptable to God. And also in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, in which we are described as a holy priesthood. Now, you think about this. So you have the temple, you have the sacrifice, you have a priesthood. You go back to that Old Testament system of sacrifices, and all three, they had to be either without blemish, that being sacrifices. Again, uh, we are to be holy, a, li- a holy living sacrifice. Priests had to be consecrated, again, holy priesthood uh, for us in First Peter. And uh, we see in the temple, this would be where God's, God's presence was actually residing. And I don't think that this is just some coincidence in how Christians are to be described. And, and that is to emphasize the holiness that we should be striving to emulate in every aspect of our life. And sexual immorality was rampant in that time we see verse after verse that talks about that issue is that you have to flee from those things and it's just as rapid now as it was then or or, or maybe actually worse back then i don't know but it's surely rapid now and the problem of that is that 
course, it's a sin. It's a sin against our own body, as Paul puts it, but it's also indicative of an impure heart. And again, it makes me think about, well, this is, if my body is described as a temple of the Holy Spirit, then my body is described as a temple, and yet within that temple is impure heart, impure motives, impure thoughts. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, it says, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. That, again, it all starts in our heart, all starts in our mind. And we have to have a pure hearts and pure minds. We have to remove all aspects of that, not just stop it actually doing the deed, but rooted out even from the, at the very beginning, rooted out from our hearts, rooted out from our view, from, our, from our, uh, any aspect of our lives. Now he goes on, and again, he talks about in, in verses uh in verse 6 says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And we also forewarned you and testified. So he talks about, he says, don't defraud in this matter. Some translations say any matter, but again, I think the, the concept holds regardless of what matter we're talking about. That whatever you do, again, we're going to be held in, in account for anything that we do, and we're going to be judged uh, judged uh, by his work. And in verse 8, Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I think many times we can preach the word or say something and, and, and say, to some, say some things to brothers or, and sisters or even those that are of the world, and the reaction can be quite intense. There can be, somebody can get mad about that, somebody can have, uh, can 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 lash out at you, but at the end of the day, we have to understand that this is the things that have been given us from God, and when we hold to that, and people lash out out against us because of that, we have to remember that it's not they're not really rejecting us; they're really rejecting God. They're really rejecting uh, the apostles as well. But as we move on from that, there's also another aspect in which we are to abound more and more. And I, and, I, and I mentioned briefly in chapter 3 and verse 12, they already were told to abound in love. And, uh, but in chapter 4 and verse 9, it says, But concerning brother, brotherly, brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. It's interesting that in verse 9 it says, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And certainly we can love, uh, learn about love through God. We just took the Lord's Supper in which we are remembering Christ's death, which was God's Son who was sent for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. And throughout time, He has always took care of His people through from the very beginning even until now. He's going to take care of us. And... Um, you know, really, we think about this, that, that when we think about love of the brethren, that it is a foundational aspect of our faith. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for the saints. Again, uh, Paul referencing Colossians, noting that their love for the brethren. Also, Philemon chapter 1 and verse 5, Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him 
who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And also, one thing that I find to be interesting is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So, when you think about that, Jesus describing calling us brethren and the love that he extends for us. We see 1 John chapter 5 that Everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him, who is begotten of him. That if we are to be imitators of Christ, as we see in First in, in Corinthians chapter 11, that we have to have that love of the breadth, that it is something that is foundational for us. And we see also in First John that if we hate our brother, we're no different than a murderer. And so the emphasis that there is what we always have to be concerned about our brethren how we help them, how we, even if they are, even if they fall away, how do we help them to return, so on and so forth. And, and even when we think about in the realm of opinions, that we have to be willing to yield to them if we are able. That's James chapter 3 and verse 17. The, the, wisdom is full, the wisdom that's from above is willing to yield. So moving on from that, we see these things in which they are to abound more and more. And, and after this, apparently there was some concern about the resurrection. What's going to happen to those, those Christians who are already dead? Or what's going to, what is really going to happen to those that are dead? And beginning in verse 13, Paul emphasizes what's going to happen to the dead Christian and uh, he emphasizes what's going to happen at, at the resurrection for all, all Christians. And, um, you know, it's interesting when we read this that I, I think about all the different theories concerning end times. This is one thing in which people get, if there's anything that people in the world or even those that are among denominations get fired up about, it's about the end days, it's the end times, what's going to happen at the end. And as you read through this, in comparison, I thought about saying this beforehand, but in comparison to some of the theories that are out there, how what's going to happen at the end is really simple. Uh, that uh, it's not any outlandish things. There's not going to be these huge battles. There's not going to be these all of these huge plagues that some people may say may happen. And in reality, when we compare that to it, it's really straightforward, really simple. And uh, what's going to happen at, the, at this time? Now, in verse 14, Jesus is described as the antitype for the dead Christian. In verses uh, 13, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So Jesus is going to, or God is going to bring with, Jesus, bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And it's interesting and also, in multiple places, when Paul talks about dead Christians, he describes them as sleeping. And it kind of implies that if you sleep, you're going to wake up. So it implies that there's, there's more to come. This is not the end for that dead Christian. Now, in verse 15, it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no, will by no means perceive those who are asleep. That those that are, are dead, there are no less a, a position than those who are, are alive at Christ's return. They're not going to be treated any differently in, 
as far as the resurrection, they're not going to be treated any differently uh, than those who are alive. And in verses 16 through 18, there's a description of what's going to happen when Christ returns. In verse 16, there's going to be, uh, he's going to descend from heaven uh, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. In verse 16, it says the dead in Christ is going to rise. In verses 17, we'll see that those who are alive will also uh, meet them, meet the Lord in the air. And in verse 18, it says, uh, or in verse 17, it says, we will, uh, we will always be with the Lord. That should be verse 17 and not verse 18. Now, in verse 18, it says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And what a great comfort this should be for them, but also for us as well, that through Christ, we can rest assured that even those Christians that have died 2,000 years ago, uh, and even those Christians who have recently uh, died, that, that through Christ we can be victorious over death, even if we sleep, and uh, we will always have that eternal home with Christ. And he goes on in chapter 5 discussing uh, this, time, uh, this time as well, and when he goes on, he says, even though this is, this is going to happen, you have to be prepared for this, this thing. You can't just say, well, you know, Christ's going to return for all of us, so I'm just going to kick back and relax. This is not what uh, Paul says. Really what he says is that you need to be on guard. In, uh, in verses 1 through 3 in, in chapter 5, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves... Know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And so Paul lays out that we can't definitively know when Christ returns. It's fascinating to me that there's, it seems like every year or every few months, there's always somebody that's, they've, they claim that they've figured it out. They know exactly when Christ is going to return. There's even some of our brethren who say that, well, he's, al he's already returned. And they say, they put a time period to say, well, this is when he, he's returned. And I um, think they're wrong about that. And, but there's, I will say that there's been a 100% failure rate of any type of prediction as to when he's going to return. And even when he's emphasizing that even if we think everything is fine or when the world thinks everything is going fine, uh, we still need to be prepared. He says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, I'm not a woman, but uh, it seems as though when that happens, it's pretty sudden. So he's kind of given that, uh, that emphasis there that we always need to be prepared uh, for, before that day. And therefore, we must always remain sober. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8, says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verses, in verse 6, it says, Therefore, let us not sleep as other do, others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. That we, that we are, he described us as, we are sons of light. We are sons of the day. We're always looking for uh, that return. And we're not going about carousing like everybody else, like those in the world, thinking everything is going just fine. And we are always have this mindset that we're going to be prepared for when that day comes. And in verse 8, he says that, uh, you know, really faith, hope, and love is going to help us win 
uh, that battle of being sober, being, vigi being vigilant, continuing uh, to fight the devil. And verse 8 says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith, love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you remember throughout this book, or if you read throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, three things are emphasized or talked about constantly, and that's faith and hope and love. And he talks about their faith and their love, but also talks about the hope. And he, he, he always is talking about this hope of when Christ returns at the ends of each of these uh, chapters or most of these chapters as, as well. But he refers to them as these components of armor. And... When you think about it, if I don't have, if I was to go out to battle, and at least at those times, if we are missing one aspect of that armor, we're, we're, we're in bad shape. You know, we're we're an open target. If I don't have my breastplate, and for example, you think about Ahab and the fellow that shoots him uh, with that arrow. If I don't have my breastplate on, and somebody shoots an arrow, well, that's I'm open target there, and especially also with my helmet. But but we cannot have. We cannot expect to be pleasing to God or to obtain that salvation, and and yet we put one of those aspects of that armor down. We cannot we cannot be pleasing to Him without faith, without our love, and our hope is foundational for those things. That's one of those. That our hope our, our hope of that eternal home is what keeps us enduring, keeps us maintaining that faith, keeps us to maintain that love for others and for God as well. And so. Uh, moving on, he goes on in verses 12 through 22. I'd kind of describe them as these final instructions that uh, we have these brief uh, instructions that are really kind of short and sweet, as I call them. And uh, so in verses 12, he, he just says, that, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the, in the Lord and admonish you. Now, I was looking at this. I don't really know. I don't know if the, he says recognize those who labor among you and are and are over you. And I don't know if they kind of they kind of are talking about the same thing there. But regardless, I do think those that labor among us that th this 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 instruction uh, should be followed for those that are for any of those that labor among us. We think about the elders that they have to shepherd the flock in First Peter chapter five and verse two. They are to serve as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. For the evangelist, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And also for everybody, everybody who is a Christian, there is always work for you to, to, for you to do. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself and love. So we all have a part to do, however minute it may be. Or even though you think, well, this is, you know, this is not a whole lot. We still all play a part of that. And in verse 13, he says, And to esteem them verily highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. And again, I think there's we can we could say that anybody, however minimal or however minimal their work may be, uh, they should we should recognize that we should be grateful for those things and uh, esteem them uh, for that as well. And and also I think when he talks about be uh, be at peace among yourselves, that if we are always being grateful for what others have done. 
recognizing what others have done, striving to do more ourselves, that that's going to help us to be at peace. That's going to, uh, to keep us, for us to remain unified because we're not, all, we're not thinking about, well, you know, so-and-so just thinks that he always has it together or so-and-so is, is not doing absolutely anything. Of course, if they're not doing anything, they need to be checked on that. But we need to have this mindset that we're always grateful for whatever somebody can contribute uh, in the congregation. Going into verses 14 through 22, there is a, uh, again, uh, kind of a brief list of commandments here. He says to warn the unruly. I think about Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 31 that, in that context, it was Paul describing to the Ephesians elders that he ceased not to warn them for, I think it was, three years. And that, that context, is, it speaks of Paul's concern towards them. And also for us, if somebody is unruly or somebody is, there, there may not be exactly in, quote, sin, but they're doing things that are just kind of strange. That's not what they used to be doing. They're starting to say things that are just kind of strange, just a little off. We need to be concerned about that. We need to be willing to check up on them, even warn them if need be. Comfort the faint-hearted. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 11, that was a verse I was referencing a while back that talks about him, Paul was comforting them as a father. And there are going to be those that are monks that are Faint-hearted, we see here that, they, that there are some that are going to be weak that we need to be uphold, that we need to uphold. And so, again, we have to have concern for the brethren and realize that there's probably somebody that, if you think that you're struggling with a bunch of stuff, there's probably somebody out there struggling with a whole lot more than you are. And not to say that to make that you, what you're dealing with any less uh, an issue, but we have to understand that there's still... We have to be willing to, what's the word, kind of uh, recognize the issues that the people are dealing with. And if need be, that we need to be willing to comfort those uh, people. And what that kind of implies that we have to know what people are dealing with. And it implies that we have to kind of know the members of the congregation and uh, speak to them, talk to them, do those sorts of things. But also, he says, to uphold the weak. Be patient with all. First Timothy chapter six talking about fleeing godliness, but uh, pursuing uh, a list of, of things, and one of those is patience. Certainly, that's you know one thing that we could all uh, grow in. And uh, and it also says no one is to render evil for evil. I think about Luke chapter six, Jesus telling that don't hate your enemy, but actually love your enemy. That you don't return <laughs> that evil for evil, but you actually do a good. Uh, to that person. We are to pursue what is good. And one of the things I like to ask is, how do we know what's good? There's only one really sure way that we know what is good, and it's not from my own brain. It's not because I just decided it was good. The only way we can know is good is from uh, God's scriptures. We are to rejoice always. And in Romans chapter 12, and verse 12, it says that we rejoicing in hope. Again, tying that back into First Thessalonians context, always talking about that hope. And um, I was talking about talking with somebody. This was kind of a interesting conversation. I don't know really how it got brought up, but, but there was a conversation being had about uh, kids getting allowance. Now, 
this is my opinion. I don't, it's not going to be, I, if you want to give kids an allowance, it's not that big issue for me, but for the record, I'm kind of against that. But, and the other person was for it. And of course they had their reasoning. It's good reasoning. But, you know, one of the things that I kind of talked about with them is, you know, for example, if I have kids, I'm already providing everything for them, or I should be providing just really just about everything for them. And what happens is they're doing these things for me, and they're expecting con this compensation that I have made agreement that says, if you do X, I'm going to give you Y for this. And one of the concerns that I had about that was, well, they grow up expecting compensation for everything that they do, or a lot of things that they do. And, I, you know, it's, that's not really based in reality. Because when you think about it, there's a lot of things that us Christians are supposed to be doing, and that's just our duty. We're, we go about that not expecting really any return. And kind of compare that to, you know, me providing everything for this kid. It's the same as Jesus providing salvation for me. And I need to be happy with that. And regardless of what my lot in his life, that I need to be thankful and grateful for that. And at the end of the day, we really, we really don't deserve anything from the very beginning. But yet, God's willing to save us. Anything that we have other than that salvation in this life is just is a blessing from Him. And we need to be thankful for that. And we need to be willing to, with, with any circumstance we may befall, be willing to rejoice. At the very least, rejoice in the hope that we have. Even if everything else is just is, has been taken away from us. We're to pray without ceasing. In Colossians 4, there's a reference to, uh, again with Paul talking about remembering them and their prayers. Uh, in verses 12, he talks about Epaphras, I believe, that, and I believe if I remember correctly, he says that, they, that he was praying fervently for them. And also in these other passages that Paul and also in the chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians talking about they're always making, mentioning to them and their prayers are always praying for them. I think there's a lot that we can take from that and a great example for us. We think about Jesus and his prayer. He was a son of God and yet he spent, you know, entire nights praying. And uh, so I think there's much that we can glean from that, even if it's just a, uh, just that simple uh, command to pray without ceasing. And everything we're to give thanks again, we're to be grateful for all that we've, we've gotten. Even if what we've gotten isn't, isn't as much as my neighbor down the street. That I've still, you know, anything that we get from this life is a, is a blessing from God. Do not quench the spirit. Now, I think in the context, this is talking about spiritual gifts because right below he says, do not despise prophecies. I think this is in the context of spiritual gifts. But remember, I still think today that it is possible to quench the spirit in a sense. And that is that we quench the spirit's work in our life. That's through his work that we know the spirit has been given. Uh, the spirit has given the word to us. And if we, if we get to a point where we don't allow that word to continue to mold, on, to mold us and continue to work on us. And he also says to test all things and to hold fast that which is good again. Uh, how do we determine what is good? I think, it, I think we determine from the scriptures that we only have one good uh, place or one good way to determine what is good and to abstain from every form of evil. Now, some translations will say that this is abstain from all appearance of evil, and I don't think that's a good translation of that because people may take that to say, well, if it just looks bad that I need to 
stay away from. And of course, in some aspects you do. But when we think about Matthew chapter 11, that Jesus, that he was described as a, a wine bibber and a glutton, that he, he, that he hung around these people. So it does not mean that we abstain from any appearance of evil at any other aspect. If it's sin, it's sin, and we need to stay away from it. But we can't be kind of hamstrung in the sense, well, it just might look bad to somebody, and it prevents us from doing that. There has to be, we have to really reason as to what the Scriptures really mean and what I'm doing. Is that sinful? Is, is it really going to put off uh, uh, the bad, the, a bad perspective from me? And in some cases, we should withhold from that, but not in every, uh, not in every case. Now, in verses 23 of chapter 5, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with a question of, do you want to be sanctified and preserved completely? Do you want to be sanctified completely? Well, you can only have that through God. You can only have that through His Son, through the salvation that's offered through Do you want it? And uh, if you're one of those who, who wants that salvation, the salvation to be the cleansed from your sins to become part of His kingdom, we'd certainly like to help you in any way in that, in that aspect. And also for the Christian, we know that there are times when you can slip, you can fall back into sin and error. And, uh, and of course, you need to repent of those things, but if need be, if you need to confess those things, we'd be uh, offered this time now, and if there's any way we could help you, uh, we certainly extend that help now as we uh, as we stand and as we sing. Will you come?